Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. I'm here in New York City, and we are joined today in New York City by Max Boot of Council on Foreign Relations. How are you doing, Max? I'm good, thank you. And in Washington, D.C. by Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hey, Corey. Hello, David. And I think also I'm guessing, but I could be wrong, in the nation's capital area by Olivia Troy, former staffer for the vice president and former Homeland Security staffer. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. How are you, Olivia? I'm well. How are you? As I was saying before we went on the air, as typically is the case on these shows, everybody in this podcast uh, is or was a Republican, except me. Although I I did work with Henry Kissinger, so maybe you know maybe I'm bipartisan enough. Um, I thought it would be uh, interesting to talk about a few things that are currently in the news that seemed to have popped into the news uh, as a consequence of a new book. I'm going to start this by, I'll just say a name, and then you guys can respond to the name. So first, and I'm going to start with you, Corey, General Milley. <laughs> Current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That, good. <laughs> this is not Jeopardy. Uh, so, you know, how do you feel about these uh, reports that suggest that he communicated in some way with the Chinese in the waning days of the Trump administration? I think the report is misleading in a whole bunch of ways that they took the most sensational possible explanation for his behavior. And as you will remember, David, back in my youth, I was a staffer in the joint staff. So I remember the processes by which these things work. And the notion that he was furtively making calls to warn our enemies is going to sell a bunch of books and may get his head chopped off. But there were 15 different people listening in on the call to the Chinese. It was regularly scheduled. We're trying very hard to get a military-to-military set of conversations that can be crisis-stabilizing. And that's a very good thing. I actually think it's bad for the country the way that people are politicizing the chairman's role. It's not good for the country to drag our military so much into that febrile partisanship that we are experiencing right now. And we're not going to like the longer-term consequences of it. Okay, so I'm going to go to Max and then Olivia. Same question, Max. Well, as usual, what Corey said, yeah. 
I'll add a, a few a few words of my own. Can I talk about the nuclear stuff too, or are we just talking about? Yeah, your article stuff? on it, your column on it in the Post was terrific, Max. Thank you. Well, I mean, again, I don't think that General Milley did anything out of the ordinary or anything wrong. I don't think he did anything unethical or illegal. I think, you know, people like Marco Rubio, who are accusing him of treason, need to take their meds and and calm down. I do think that there is no question that General Milley was very alarmed by what was going on with, with President Trump before and after the election. And for good cause. We all saw this. I mean, Trump has been a basket case from day one, and he refused to concede the election outcome. He incited an insurrection. Let's not pretend that this is all normal business as usual. And everybody says, oh, oh, um, you know, no big deal. Just another president refusing to accept another election. This has never happened before. Okay, I mean, he was trying to stage a coup d'etat against the U.S. government. And if the military had gone along with them, he would have happily taken their help and and overthrown our democracy. And so there were a lot of people, not just General Milley, a lot of people in Washington, a lot of people around the in the country, a lot of people around the world who were, you know, scared out of their minds because they thought, oh my God, we have this unbalanced, unhinged madman who, by the way, has sole control of our nuclear arsenal. This is problematic. And so I don't know, we don't know what was going on with the Chinese and why they might have thought that we were going to attack them, which clearly was not the case. But maybe this had something to do with it. Maybe various countries around the world looking at this in places like Iran or North Korea or China were thinking like, maybe there's a wag the dog scenario here. Maybe Trump is out of his mind. Who knows what he's going to do? Because he has sole command of the nuclear arsenal. He can do anything he wants. And it's legal. So there is a reason why people would be alarmed. There's a reason why General Milley would be alarmed, because you know, he clearly saw that Trump was trying to usurp our constitutional democratic order, and he wanted to make sure that the military was not going to somehow be drawn into, into these schemes. And there was an earlier book by Carol Leonig and Philip Rucker of the, of the Washington Post that talked about how Milley had referred to a Reichstag moment, said he wasn't going to be part of any coup against the government, which is clearly the kind of thing that was on Donald Trump's mind. So I commend General Milley for doing what he could to preserve our constitutional order. And again, I don't think he did anything wrong. He didn't countermand any orders. He didn't refuse to obey any orders. But clearly, he was, I, it sounds to me like he was kind of acting to the utmost of his authority to try to tell lower level commanders, hey, you know, this is a crazy moment. Let's all calm down. Let's make sure we don't do anything crazy, like launching a nuclear strike on somebody without proper authorization, that kind of thing. So, you know, I think he was, what he was doing is the right thing. But you know, to the point that Corey was making, this is going to further widen the civil military divide with Republicans who are already attacking so-called woke generals and who are already aggrieved at Milley for not, you know, supporting Trump in, in his crazy attack on protesters on Lafayette Park and so forth and so on. And now you have people like Tucker Carlson, you know, calling Milley a pig. You have Marco Rubio accusing him of treason. So this is, you know, this is a dangerous moment. And I think we have to be very alarmed about what happens if Republicans take control of the White House in 2024 or somewhere down the line. If it's, you know, if it's assuming it's not a normal Republican like Mitt Romney, if you're talking about like Donald Trump or Trump type, like a Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, Tucker Carlson type, I would be very alarmed because I think one of the first things they're going to do is, is to purge anybody in a senior position in the military who they don't think is a rabid MAGAite. 
anybody who's more loyal to the Constitution and to the Republican Party is going to be, I think, on the chopping block. And so this this is a very dangerous moment. One of the points that I made in my Washington Post column to which Corey Conley alluded is, you know, we should be passing legislation to limit the president's discretion on first use of nuclear weapons, unless we've been attacked first, which in which case all bets are off. But the president should not have complete discretion just to launch a nuclear strike and have everybody salute and carry it out, which is the case today. We need to have some congressional limitations in that authority because we need to be cognizant of the fact that we could have another president in the future who's also out of his mind. In fact, we could have the same president in the future, Donald Trump, because he could run again and win. Yeah, you make a really good point. Now, just to draw a line under it, what all these people who are saying things like it's treason and, and condemning him are doing is also putting a marker out there as to what behavior they would expect in a future administration. So it's not just political rhetoric. It's a message to the next general who is in that position. And that's kind of disturbing. Olivia. I think what the Republicans are doing now is they're just making Millie the villain. And they're going to continue to find ways to continue on their attacks on him because I think it serves as a distraction too. I think that anything they can do to distract from what happened on January 6th, which is a narrative that they're going to have to counter repeatedly in terms of upcoming elections and anything that's related to that. I, I think that, you know, whether it be Afghanistan and we can, you know, debate pros and cons on that, on how the Biden administration handled it, but they're certainly not looking at it from a holistic viewpoint. And I've obviously been very vocal about the refugee crisis there and what happened under the Trump administration, because that all leads up to it. So I think Max is right with the whole wokeness in the military. They were so angry and they attacked Millie when it came to critical race theory. And there were all those rants that happened during that hearing. I think they have it out for him. And so I think, you know, I also think that context matters. And uh, I haven't read the book. Obviously, it's not out yet. Um, I don't have an advanced copy of it. I read the excerpts of it. Some of it seems a little bit over-sensationalized and a little bit out of context to me, but I but I don't know. I haven't read the entire thing. What I will say is I, I would proceed with caution in the attacks on Millie because I don't think that he acted in any way that was insubordinate, so to speak, or out of the norm of coordination from what we're seeing. And look, Esper apparently was equally as concerned back in October before he gets pushed out about what they were seeing. And whatever the intelligence was, was so alarming that they felt they needed to reach out through diplomatic channels and say, hey, we realize that our president is saying some insane, crazy rhetoric, and please don't misconstrue that and take a preemptive launch at us we're not actually actively planning something. So please don't take something that he's saying publicly. And, you know, Donald Trump was known for this. He would incite things. He would say insightful things internationally about, you know, our global partners, community. And the closer we got to the election, I will say this, the angrier Trump got, especially when it came to things like COVID, right? And this is a man that referred to COVID as the Kung flu at times and the China virus. And so that is all context for this, where the angrier he gets about the fact that it's not looking good for him and the closer he gets to the election and he realizes that he may not, you know, win, he starts to undermine not only our democratic process where he lays the groundwork for saying the election, you know, there's going to be fraud, 
it's already happening and things like that. He was making those statements ahead of time, but he starts to escalate his, his anger towards China because he needs someone to blame. And so his blame in terms of the domestic election is to blame it on China and kind of shift the narrative and try to turn it into, this is China's fault. It's not my fault that I was reckless. It's not my fault that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are dead because I was reckless in my management, <laughs> mismanagement in my, this pandemic. And so I think that is all part of the context. And to, to vilify Millie for taking actions to protect us and just to say, hey, I don't want to, I don't want there to be an escalation of conflict from something that's a misunderstanding, possibly. I don't blame him for that. But, you know, if people were so alarmed, I, I am still upset that none of these people in the cabinet, including my former boss, Mike Pence, invoked the 25th Amendment when you have an unhinged ban where you have the chairman of the joint staff saying, we are very concerned and there's that that much concern across the board about what's happening here. And you've got a man who has the nuclear codes and, he's, and you have Millie saying, make sure you follow the process. It doesn't matter. So, so may I have two quick points? Two quick points before the question I have for you. Okay. Point one, I don't share Max's view on changing the command arrangements for nuclear release, but that's a subject for another day. And he makes a terrific case and raises really important questions that we should be debating about it in another podcast. Second point, Mark Milley does not help his case by how much he is being directly, he either has the least discreet group of friends in Washington, or he is encouraging people to share his views. And he should take some advice from the great defense attorney, Clarence Darrow, that no man was ever convicted based on testimony he did not give. There's a lot of loose talk by everybody quoting the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and that's unbecoming given his position. Yeah, it's a good point. And I mentioned this earlier on Twitter, but if there's a bunch of leaks about one person that seem to be focused on trying to change the reputation of that person, it's never an accident. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we have to sort of put it into some kind of context. So the next round, the next name I'm going to give you, Corey, is Mike Pence. Mike Pence is the number one Republican contender for president right now, according to a poll that I just saw today. But he had a conversation, according to this same book, with the man who served as vice president in the administration of George H. W. Who would have thought Dan Quayle becomes the hero of the Republic? Well, what did you think of that? I was really proud of Vice President Quayle for doing the right thing. If, in fact, the account is true, it's wonderful that a former vice president who shares many of the political views of the man who was then the incumbent vice president upheld the guardrails and the institutional restrictions and the norms of democracy in America. I mean, that's the difference between democracy and populism. Democracy is the will of the people. Populism is corroding or breaking the institutional barriers that limit political power. If that account is true, it reflects extraordinarily well on Vice President Quayle and extraordinarily badly on Vice President Pence. Yes. Well, we will get the view of somebody who worked with Vice President Pence in a moment. But first, Max, 
Well, I'm actually also more interested in Olivia's view of Pence than, than my own view, but I will just say that it is amusing to see. It's kind of a sign of how far the Republican Party has fallen, that the voice of wisdom and sobriety belongs to Dan Quayle. And this is not out of character in some ways, because, I mean, this has been kind of the, the half century trajectory of the Republican Party, which is that people who in one generation are seen as kind of lightweights or irresponsible bomb throwers, actually a generation later seem pretty moderate, sane and sober by comparison. I mean, in the 1960s, of course, Barry Goldwater was seen as this far right lunatic. And of course, by the 1990s, he had wound up kind of on the left edge of the, of the Republican Party. In the 70s, Bob Dole was seen as this kind of right wing hardliner again by the 1990s. He was so moderate that he was no longer trusted by members of the Republican Party. And, you know, of course, now George W. Bush, who was, again, during his presidency, seen as Bob by a lot of by a lot of Democrats and, and for sure did a lot of things wrong, is now, I think, looked upon pretty nostalgically by people uh, to the left of Donald Trump, because he seems and you, and you saw his recent remarks, you know, implicitly comparing the January 6th terrorists with the 9-11 terrorists. So George W. Bush seems pretty sane and responsible compared to where the Republican Party is today. And so it's a very it's a terrifying trajectory because what you're seeing now, as others have pointed out, is even Donald Trump is not at the cutting edge of Republican craziness anymore, because even Donald Trump is willing to say kind of half-heartedly, yeah, you know, take your vaccine, although he won't really advocate it. But he admits that he took the vaccine and that the vaccine is a good thing. And now, on the other hand, you have, you know, the, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and others who are saying that, you know, vaccine mandates are like the Holocaust. So that's the ability of the Republican Party to veer into, into lunatic territory continues apace. And I think we're, we're engaging in wishful thinking if we think that Donald Trump is the final destination of their, of their nuttiness. I'm, I'm afraid he's only a way station to some truly frightening destination. Yeah, just this week alone, we have Lauren Bobert announcing that it was God who told her to run for the presidency. And apparently one of the guys running against Liz Cheney put up on his Facebook page that Anthony Fauci should be tried and executed. So we're, we're headed into some interesting territory there. Uh, Olivia, you worked for this favorite son of Indiana. You know, Indiana used to produce these kind of principled Republicans, you know, Dan Coates was one in that administration. William Henry Harrison, David. He was not on my list, but yes, William Henry Harris. I was thinking <laughs> of Gary. I was thinking of Lee Hamilton. And Dan Quayle was on the list. And people for a while there thought your former boss was one of them. But the more we learn, the less we think so. What do you think of this report? I don't know. I struggle with this story because I don't really know like the complete context on it. And, um, but uh, I will say this, it sounds like Pence because Pence has a habit of, he will call around when he's faced with a very stressful, hard decision. This is something that I did observe with him. And the thing is, unfortunately for Pence, he'll call around when he keeps getting the answer that he doesn't necessarily want to hear or that he wants to hear a different answer. And so unfortunately in this situation, I'm not making him sound too great because I'm kind of sitting here thinking, so were you calling around hoping that someone would give you the out? So you finally say, okay, Quayle was vice president. 
He's a Republican friendly heir. Maybe he has the rabbit out that he can pull out of the hat. The solution to get me out of this quandary that I'm in with the madman in the Oval Office who is really angry right now and pressuring me to come up with a way to overturn this election and do this. And so, uh, you know, kudos to Dan Quayle, who is reminding Pence, you have no authority. It's the law. Just give it up already. Enough. Like, you know, just go forward. Certify the election. Do your job. That is your job. It's ceremonial. That's all you can do in this situation. And so, you know, but I, I don't know. I mean, he will sometimes when faced with a Donald Trump sort of bullying situation, he will build alliances and try to figure out way, a way to satiate Trump, so to speak. So I could see a scenario, though, where he was trying to line up different names and things that he did to go to Trump and say, I've done this, I've done, I've called this person, I've called this other person. I even called Dan Quayle. There is nothing I can do, Mr. President, to change the outcome of this situation and hope that that would sort of soften the blows that he was going to get um, and the blowback that he was going to get. And so I could see a scenario where that would partially be the case. But the problem with Mike Pence is that in most of these scenarios, when it came to Donald Trump, he folds. And I guess the only thing that I'm grateful for is at the very end, and maybe it's because his own life was put at risk very boldly that day, he didn't fold. And he very well could have done something. But he clearly was shaken that day when he puts out that statement and he's on the way to the Capitol. Right? He, puts out, he put out a very public statement saying, I have no other choice basically hey, i'm gonna go do this and he puts out this public statement to everyone saying i'm on my way to the capitol and it's almost like he's letting everyone know by the way i'm going in and i have no idea what's about to happen to me because i know how angry this person is so i mean i i don't know i don't know really what what happened there but it certainly doesn't paint pence in the best light if he was going around trying to figure out what other options he had okay so these are two stories that have come up this week. They are not the first stories of this type that we've heard. In fact, as I've mentioned on this podcast, and as I've talked with greater length to Olivia and Corey about, I'm writing a book about people who have who stepped up in the course of the Trump administration to sort of serve as guardrail. The consequence of doing the research on this book is that Lots of these situations occurred. Lots of times. In fact, you know, I'm scraping. I've interviewed 75 people so far. I think I'm scraping the surface. There are going to be a lot of other books that are going to come out that are going to talk about that I know about that are going to come out, and they're going to say Donald Trump had this insane idea about launching missiles at this person or starting a war in this place or doing this thing that would be you know, against international law or a violation of the Constitution. And time after time after time, people, public servants, people like Olivia, got together with other well-intentioned people and they said, how do we keep this thing from blowing up? Now, one interpretation of that is these people were honoring their oath to the Constitution. But another interpretation of that is that they were disobeying the person who was elected as commander in chief 
by the people of the United States. And as I've gone out there, I've talked to some very sober, smart, thoughtful people. And they've said, is this a good thing? Is it the right thing? Where is this line? And I just would like each one of you to reflect on that, that moral challenge that came up again and again and again in this administration. As recently as today, one of America's great political weather veins, Nikki Haley, said something to the effect of, General Milley should be loyal to his president, not the Chinese. As advice to future public servants, how do you grapple with this moral dilemma, Court? Uh, so first of all, David, I was worried that the Nikki you were going to quote was Minaj, not Haley. So I'm super <laughs> relieved. <laughs> uh, because I could only imagine you're, that was an image I do not need to see. Right? Right. <laughs> exactly right. That absolutely is an image I could have gone a very long time without. Yeah. It's a serious question and a hard question. And all of us have friends who went into the administration, and you can actually see the enormous moral toll it took on them trying to day in and day out navigate between Scylla and Charybdis on this. It seems to me that the first thing, especially people in high political appointments should do is read the legal description of your job, right? What, if you are the Secretary of Defense, what are your constitutional and statutory responsibilities? And what are the limits on those responsibilities? You know, one of the things I love best about the American government is how easy it is to hit bank shots and get policy, right? Amateurs at American policymaking try and take a straight line. And that's always, you know, the court of first resort, but it's always almost also impossible. It's sort of like driving in Washington. The direct route is rarely the fastest route. And so if you don't know what your statutory and constitutional responsibilities are, when you try and take the fastest route, which may not be direct, you can yourself go awry and commit crimes or infractions of important norms in American democracy. So my first piece of advice is read what your actual responsibilities are. The second thing is to think carefully as you start a job about where the boundaries of your own ethical comfort are. That is, what are you going to resign over? And the third thing is have people in your life who will tell you when they think you've gone past that point. Because one of the things I notice about a lot of folks, friends and enemies alike, in the last several years, is just how easy it is to persuade yourself that you're essential to keeping the country on the right path, and therefore you need to stay in a job no matter what's happening. And I think we should all remember that even George Washington was not indispensable to the nation. Right. Even he thought that others could do and should do what he did. So that's my last piece of advice. Don't think you are indispensable because that's almost never actually true. 
And it's one way I have seen people persuade themselves to do things that they subsequently deeply regretted. This, by the way, uh, folks, is why I, uh, having studied the NSC for most of my life, would recommend that a permanent position of NSC philosopher be established (laughs) and that Corey be given the position for life. Oh, I curtsy my thanks, David. I mean, these are obviously difficult dilemmas, and I feel a little bit unqualified to opine on them since I have not actually worked in the government and uh, Olivia actually worked in this last government, so which was one dilemma after another. I mean, I would say as, you know, as a, as a general proposition that what I keep discovering, frankly, is that our founders' vision of the country was more flawed than I realized. And I keep thinking that actually countries that follow the Westminster system actually might be smarter than, than what we're doing on a whole variety of levels. I'm not even going to go into the composition of the Senate and the Supreme Court and all that stuff. That's a subject for another day where we're deeply screwed up. But I just think that we have too many political appointees in the executive branch, way more than you have, for example, in the British government or other democratic governments. So there is way too much potential for mischief. I mean, we should have permanent undersecretaries. We should have that a high level permanent bureaucracy like they have in the UK, for example. And it's easy to make fun of those folks like on Yes Minister, but they actually serve as an institutional check and balance on a lunatic president of the kind that we just had. And I think it's much harder when you're talking about political appointees because they feel much more loyalty to the president, even though the oaths that they swear are to the Constitution and not to the office holder. And I think, you know, people like Olivia and others, I think, did the right thing by understanding that they were not there to carry out the wishes of a madman but there to check the wishes of a madman on behalf of the Constitution and and the people of the United States. But, you know, it's very hard to count on that kind of loyalty to the Constitution from a lot of people who are chosen primarily from the ranks of political loyalists. And, you know, if there's one thing that we saw with Donald Trump is, you know, he was completely inexperienced going in and he had the worst instincts, but he didn't know how to carry them out because, he was basically too dumb and, and, and too ignorant to know how to manipulate the U.S. government. But as the administration went along, even somebody as mentally challenged as Donald Trump started to figure things out. And he started getting rid of, you know, secretaries of defense like Jim Mattis or Mike Esper, who would be likely or Mark Esper, who would be likely to, uh, to stand up to him. And so by the end, he had almost entirely placeholders in charge on the civilian side of DOD, which probably is a lot of the reason why Mark Milley was so alarmed, because he probably felt at the end that he was the last barrier against something really, really crazy, because, you know, you had this acting secretary of defense with no status, no credibility. You had, you know, a bunch of crazy MAGA people around him. Anything could happen at that point. So I'm sure that only raised Milley's alarm. So we should you know, just as a general proposition, I would say, again, unlikely to happen, but just like we should be looking at legislative fixes to uh, the nuclear chain of command. So not everything rests on the discretion of a president who may very well be out of his mind. But we should also be, I think, limiting the number of political appointees. So there's just more checks and balances within the system. And in other words, we should be empowering and very appropriate on this podcast 
we should be empowering the deep state. I'm sure a lot of our listeners can get behind that. Olivia. It is a very hard, hard decision (laughs) to walk through when you're in a really, really um, challenging situation, especially as public servant. And I think I think you're right to point out that the dynamic between politicals and career is a little different. Although I think that at the end of the day, your loyalty is to the country and the constitution. Um, and that should first and foremost play a role in what you're doing here when you do have to make a decision about what's happening before you. But um, I think Corey's advice, her two points are valid. And I will say that that was something that I faced significantly. Um, and I will say that my closest mentors, I was very fortunate that I had worked for some people that I really respected along the way, members of the intelligence community and former military officers, very senior military officers that I worked for, um, who I still remained in touch with. And what I'll say is this, I think it's important to know your red lines for you personally. And I think that especially I will say that there were definitely situations where I've been tested along the way, and I have served in government for almost 20 years under different administrations, but I have never been tested and challenged the way I was in the four years working around the Trump administration. And I'm talking about things where I have deployed to Baghdad. I have worked on very challenging issues on detention operations on Guantanamo Bay. I have worked on some very front and center counterterrorism issues and challenges. But I have never seen such sort of malice (laughs) and maliciousness at a very senior level of an administration like I did in the Trump administration. And so I feel like every day I probably had a conversation with myself about like, what happened today? How do you feel about what happened today? And does this cross the line of your moral compass where you can no longer do this? And at that point, then you have a really hard decision to make. And the decision is, do you, you know, there are ways around it, right? That's why you have whistleblowers who file, go through the process and come forward. And people, you know, at times they'll make the decision to resign. For me, as I sat at DHS and worked on very complicated executive orders that were issued by the Trump administration, and then went over to the White House and worked on the vice president's staff. For me, it was, are you, do you actually feel like you're able to make a difference and really hang in there on something that is very complicated? And do you think you're actually helping and serving in a manner that is within your moral obligation to the constitution of the American people? Or are you enabling and causing more harm where you're, or are you just not able to make a difference anymore? And for me, I think as I saw more and more how unhinged Trump was becoming more and more towards the end of the administration, especially, I think for me, my line was like, it would be hypocritical for me to remain in my position, in a position where I've spent my entire career claiming that I serve in the national security community and that I'm serving to protect American lives with that mission and sit there and watch what was happening. Because for me, that line was really about life and protecting American life. And and, and that line was also tested on the incident of Lafayette Square, where I saw how boldly Trump would be willing to use force against Americans and how he 
every reaction for him was, let's use the military. It didn't matter on who, whether it was a foreign country, whether it was our own Americans and things like that. That was just so appalling to me, I will say, because I was there inside the White House in Lavin Square. And so I have this COVID pandemic that's raging and I'm watching how reckless this is and how it's actually hurting Americans. And so I made a moral decision that I could no longer, I was no longer able to really make a difference. And, you know, like Corey said, there's always someone to replace you. Did I hang in there at times because I thought who comes after me? I think many people did. I think, to be honest, is I will be replaced by a loyalist who will go out of their way to undermine and do things. And for me, honestly, there were times where I was like, if I leave, who's going to tell Dr. Fauci or Dr. Redfield or Dr. Birch or all these other doctors on the task force, who's going to tell them you're about to be set up when you walk into this? Or, you know, I mean, who's going to tell them, honestly, you need to prep for this and have your answers ready because they're going to try to steer the guidelines in a direction that I know you don't believe in and you think is dangerous. It's hard. But then, you know, I guess by that definition, I was a deep state, right? And, and am I being insubordinate? I don't know. I think, you know, people will judge me and history will judge whether you thought you were doing the right thing at the time or weren't. You know, and I made the decision, I resigned. And I decided that I needed to remove myself from the situation because I could no longer, I no longer felt like I was actually carrying on my oath by being part of this thing. Uh, and then, you know, I don't, I make the decision Actually, tomorrow, it'll be a year since I decided to go public. And that is a whole separate decision, to be honest, is, you know, many, you can resign and, and decide to stay quiet. But for me, I felt that in this moment in time, I felt like I needed to be public about this because I strongly felt that people needed to hear it from someone who was there firsthand and then make their decision on whether they wanted this man to continue to be president. Four minutes because I thought it was completely dangerous of what what would come and it, that legacy is still playing out. I don't know. I don't know if I gave good advice there on what to do in that scenario, but I think that you definitely, I think you set your moral boundaries before you go into the situation. You're going to be tested every day. And I will say a last thing: the palace intrigue is real, and I think that one thing that I think made the decision for me clear was when I. When I started to change as a person, when you start to realize that you're changing as an individual and your character is changing, I noticed that maybe halfway, maybe towards the last year when I was serving, where I was becoming a different person. And I didn't like the person that I was starting to become. And I had to really take a step back and, and realize that the environment was changing me and, and not for the good. And so I think that's also something that I think when you start to realize that you are being sort of engulfed and taken into this, I think you have to take a step back and not let the dynamics of power get to you and remind yourself of why you serve. Excellent advice. Excellent insights. Exemplary choices made most recently here by Olivia. Without giving away too much of the punchline of a book that I'm writing that won't come out for a year. One of the things that somebody said to me fairly recently was, you can write all the laws that you want, but at the end of the day, it's going to come down to the character of the people. And, you know, Max, you talked about the founders, and I think one of the assumptions that the founders made that was faulty 
was that people would value character and focus on principle in much the same way that they did. Not all of them, by the way, they were hardly perfect, but that this would be a a more central issue and that people would be less cynical. And um, I've seen this for decades, but I see this particularly in light of this administration where we faced the most extraordinary circumstance we've ever faced, which is that the most, the person that was most empowered by the American people was unfit in every way by virtue of lack of experience, by virtue of lack of intellect, by virtue of the wrong kind of temperament and motives. And it came upon the people around him and their character to determine what the outcome was. We're fortunate that people like Olivia were there. We're fortunate that people like Max and Corey are providing advice. You are all principled people. And I think that's why this was a discussion that I wanted to have. So thank you very much to each of you. Hopefully we'll continue the discussion somewhat in the future. For those of you interested in more of what we've got coming, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership if you'd like to support this kind of thing. And um, for now, thank you, Max. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Olivia. Come back soon. And everybody else, stay healthy out there. It's not, it's not an easy thing to do. Bye-bye.